Ecclesiastes chapter number 1. We'll continue with our studies through this book. We'll consider verse 12 to 18 this afternoon. Um, but before that, I'd like to read the chapter and then make a prayer. And then we, go, we, sh we shall go on. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. So this is Solomon is telling us how he viewed life under the sun. Chapter 1, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full to the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who are over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Let us pray. We come to you, our God, this afternoon in the blessed name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we thank you that he has clothed us with his righteousness, a righteousness that shall never fade, 
They shall never be destroyed. They shall never rust. We pray that as we consider your word this, uh, this afternoon, help us to embrace these truths. Help us not to shrink. Help us not to shut our ears to what you're saying to us. We pray that these truths will clash with our unbiblical thinking in our minds and that you may reveal your truth to us. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we considered from verse 2 to 11 and the preacher is narrate, was narrating to us the cycle of vanity that is in this world and there's a frustration level that we are hit by on the word go from verse 2 he says vanity of vanity says the preacher vanity of vanities all is vanity his frustration is with monotony his frustration is with the meaninglessness of life and it is the frustration that pushes the preacher to search out for meaning and purpose in life there's no satisfaction in this life that is what he says there's no it's just emptiness and futility verse 3 what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun he's asking why am i even here in this life if life is a vapor what is the point and verse 4 a generation goes and a generation comes but the earth remains forever and here he's talking about the universal cycle of nature and it could be generation z generation x whatever generation you are who cares nobody cares he says they come and they go verse 5 the sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises he says each day is a meaningless repetition the sun could be beauty to some but to solomon it's a repetition of the meaningless repetition of life what is accomplished he says nothing verse 6 the wind blows to the south and goes around to the north around and around goes the wind and when it circuits the wind returns what is the point of all this he's saying life is like a treadmill you're running on the treadmill you're sweating you're working hard but you're not going anywhere you can watch news for 20 years you can have you can watch different um, news stories for 20 years but the world is not going anywhere nothing is changing it's a constant repetitive motion and then verse 7 all streams run to the sea but the sea is not full to the place where the streams flow there they flow again so he's saying that the fact that the rivers flow to the sea the sea is never full it makes no sense the sea is a, is a bottomless pit it can never be satisfied it can never be filled up and he's saying all this impressive activity seems to be accomplishing nothing and that's that's a reminder to our daily our daily chores your dirty clothes your dirty dishes 
they just keep coming. You wish that someone could discover a way, you could throw away dirty clothes, you could throw away dirty dishes. Nothing is ever done. And someone has said the world is a hub of activity devoid of progress. We're always busy, but there's no progress. And then uh, the, the last uh, verses, 8 to 11, all things are full, full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. So there's nothing new under the sun. There's no satisfaction or fulfillment for man. The human desire is never satisfied. It is restless. Verse 9 and 10, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. Is the, and, is, and there is nothing new under the sun. There are no legacies. There are no memorials. People can uh, give roads their names. People can give schools their names. But you'll soon be forgotten. So if, if you can ask your friend <laughs> if they can tell you the legacy of Solomon, in spite of him being the, 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 the wisest, him being the richest at the time, the most influential, but who remembers Solomon? So there's no remembrance, verse 11, of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. We come to verse 12, and before we look at it, let me begin by saying that God commends wisdom. He commends the pursuit of wisdom. He commends submission to wisdom. And he commends wise living. And much of the commendation about wisdom, they come from the writings of Solomon. Solomon says in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 7, the beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom, and whatever you get, get insight. In Proverbs chapter 8, verse 11, he says, For wisdom is better than jewels, and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. So God recognizes the value of wisdom and encourages us to pursue wisdom. In Ecclesiastes 9, verse 16, Solomon says, But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. And so as we come to this section, verse 12 to the end of this chapter, uh, the, the sermon is titled, The Vanity of Wisdom. The Vanity of Wisdom. And in verse 12 to 15, we shall see his passionate pursuit, the passionate pursuit. The preacher is going to passionately pursue to find the meaning and purpose to life. And then secondly, we shall see the application of wisdom in verse 16 to 17a. Verse 16 to 17a, the application of wisdom. And then lastly, verse 17b to the end, verse 18, the conclusion. What was his conclusion? So we come to verse 12, and he says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel 
in Jerusalem. And so we move from the monotony, from the frustrations of life, to Solomon wanting to do something about it. We move from Solomon's meaninglessness to his determination to do something about it. He's going for a quest here to find meaning and purpose for life. And the first thing he's going to do is going to, is going to analyze life through wisdom and knowledge. And perhaps he could find the meaning of life and clear up the vapor and the meaninglessness and apply wisdom to this dilemma. What is his realm of investigation? All that is done under the sun, the activities of both man and God. And so he identifies himself here as a preacher and as a king. This is a prestigious status. And he's saying, before I tell you anything, here is who I am. This is Solomon's resume. And he wants to tell you that he is qualified to tell you about wisdom. He is qualified to tell you about life. Because he was a king, he was the wisest man. Because if someone comes to you and he tells you that I'm seeking to go on a journey, to seek the meaning of life, you may as well ask him, who are you? And Solomon is telling us here, I was somebody. He had a, he had a father. His father was a national hero. He was born into royalty. He had a godly father. His father instructed him in the way of the Lord. And as a king, Solomon had a majestic reign. He was a king, meaning whatever he said, it was law. He had power to destroy, he had power to kill. He sat in the highest seat of the land. And with his reign came multiple resources and riches. He had everything he could want to have. He was the richest man to ever live. This was a man who had wealth beyond comparison. And he says, I was king in Israel. He was king over God's people. This man is king over God's people. And above that, what makes him even more qualified, he had the experience. He had God's power. He had all the resources. The preacher is going to pursue the meaning of life with unlimited resources. He's going to make logic and sense to life. And who better qualified than him? Philip Riken says his quest was extensive as it was intensive because he had access to everything he needed to know and maybe he could find an answer he had wealth he had intelligence he had power and he's thinking maybe if, if I could think deeply maybe if I could pursue knowledge and philosophy maybe I could come up with the meaning and purpose of life Solomon had his credentials to solve this dilemma. He had been given wisdom by God and not from the University of Jerusalem. He had been given wisdom from God. And the Bible says in 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 29, And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure. 
and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore. So that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. Verse 30. Verse 31. For he was wiser than all the other men, wiser than Ethan the Ezraite, the, and Heman, Kalkol, and Dada, the sons of Mahol. And his fame was in all the surrounding nations. Verse 32 says, He also spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. So his wisdom surpassed everyone that had gone before him. His wisdom was beyond compare. He had all access to all the resources. He had access to international trade routes. He had access to people all over the world. And none of us could imagine the kind of resources at his disposal. And who better to solve the enigma, the puzzle of life other than Solomon, the preacher himself. And so he's going to, to search. He's going to introduce us to search for meaning and purpose in life in verse 13. And understanding all the things through wisdom. Verse 13. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. Pause. He's saying, I'm going on a life's mission to pursue the meaning of life and he's saying he applied his heart he devoted himself and this is a relentless persistent insistent determination and there and and my heart there is talking of the totality of who he is the preacher not only had the resources to pursue the meaning of life but he also had the determination he was going to search out he says he was going to seek and to search out by wisdom. To search out means to, to investigate, to explore. He had determination to seek, to spy, to investigate. And how is he going to do that? He says, by wisdom. He's going to search out the meaning of life by wisdom. I'm going to use observation. I'm going to think critically and deeply. I'm going to explore with wisdom. He's going to find the meaning of life using his brain power. And he's going to see if he can come up with some sort of answers and conclusions. Where was he going to apply his wisdom? All that is done under heaven. And his investigation consists of all that is done under heaven both referring to the activity of God and the activity of man in the world. I'm going to seek answers to life's questions, all that happens here on earth, and is going to get to the bottom of it. And how does it all work? How does this all mean? What is this about? What is going on every day? Notice what he says at the end of verse 13. He says, it is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. So what is his observation? He says it is an unhappy business. The NRV says what a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. The NASB says it is a sorry task with which God has given 
the sons of mankind. It's a grievous task. It's, it's unprofitable. It's a disastrous business. So man in this context could mean children of Adam. Children of... Is referring us to as children of Adam, meaning that we are facing the effects of the fall. So he's going to look at agriculture, for example, to look at education, to look at military, trade, housing, environment, transport. I'm going to take the resources and the wisdom that I have, and I'm going to make sense of all this. I'm going to search out and investigate under the microscope and find out all the secrets and the mysteries behind them. I'm going to find out why the world does this. Why do people act this way? Why do things go this way? And he says, his first observation is, it is unhappy business. He's saying, it wears you out. It is depleting. It is empty. It wastes you away. And there are three observations there. It is an unhappy business. I'll be fine that. And then he says, it is God-given task. He says that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. It's a God-given task because every man is created with, with a desire to find out the meaning of life. Every man has been given the capacity to think. And you see, that is not given to animals. So that animals do not even care about the meaning of life, about the purpose of life. And so he says, it is a God-given task. And then he says, the third, the third observation, that it is burdensome. That this quest is an affliction to man. Why is it a burden? It's a burden because the meaning never comes. No matter how diligent the investigation, it doesn't produce the results. You see, this is not, this is not a lab test where you put something under the microscope and you come up with a conclusion. This is a painful search because there's no meaning to it. Notice his discovery in verse 14. Verse 14, there's a personal discovery. He says, I have seen everything that is done under the sun and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. Notice that he has, he has investigated what? He says everything. All that can be found here on earth. He says, I've exhausted every single thing that is done under the sun. And he came up with a complete observation. This is somebody who has seen it all, who has studied it all. And he says, it is temporary. It is not satisfying. It is like striving after wind. You can try as hard as you can to chase the wind, but you'll never grasp it. You can never have a hold on it. We're talking here about thinking, about trying to understand the answers to the riddles of life. And it's a grievous task, what God has given to, to the children of man. So he's, he's seen it all. He has examined all the work man is involved in. And he says, all is vanity. All is vanity because questions remain unanswered and unanswerable. Let me introduce you to this phrase, striving after the wind. Have you ever run after the wind? 
if you're fast enough, are you able to catch it? Are you able to, to have a hold on it? Because if you're, able, if you're even able to catch it, wind is elusive. You cannot hold on it. And he's saying, to answer the meaning and purpose of life is like you're chasing after the wind. And you may ask yourself, why is he so pessimistic about using God-given wisdom to figure out the problems of life? Why does he seem pessimistic? Look at verse 15. He says, what is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. You see, wisdom on its own is hollow because it cannot straighten that which is crooked. There are some problems in this world that can never be solved. Talk of poverty. Talk of diseases. What did Solomon discover when he went into investigation? No matter how much I try, I cannot straighten that which is crooked. I cannot change things. I cannot change people. I do not have an effect. And all of us at some point have tried to change people. We've tried to change the world. But the same thing that you're trying to do is not always, does not always bring lasting solutions. And if you're honest with life, there are a number of times we ask questions. Why did this happen? And the only answer is, you do not know. The only answer is, what is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. The number of times we lack information, the number of times that we need data to connect things, but we are not able to do it. In other words, what is broken cannot be fixed, let alone answered. Furthermore, that which is lacking cannot be counted. What the preacher is saying here that there is a fundamental lack of data for the project that he's undertaking. I cannot get to the bottom line because there's no enough information. And that's why this whole business is a grievous task given to man. It is God who has put the desire in our hearts to seek to know the meaning and purpose of life it is not given us all the pieces together. There are no corners, pieces, there are no edges. There are huge holes in the middle. And so what do you do? Verse 15 should help us to see that God is beyond us. His ways cannot be fathomed by mere creatures like us. If you look at chapter 7, verse 13 of Ecclesiastes, he says in verse 13 of chapter 7, Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Verse 14. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other. So that man may find out anything that will be after him. Sorry. So that man may not find out anything that will be after him. He's saying, things are crooked by God's design. 
we do not like bent things so that if you if you play draft and you're missing a piece you want to make sure that you have that piece so that you can that piece of uh, so that that piece so that you can you can you can play and he's saying what is crooked cannot be straightened and, and we do not like bent things God is putting in us a place where real dependence ought to be found in him. Real satisfaction ought to be found in him. He's showing us our frailty. He's bringing us to the end of our own resources. This is our way of going to him. You can have the joy, the blessings of life, but what God has made crooked, you cannot straighten it. God designed it that way and he wants it to be that way. And there's a purpose for them being bent, being crooked. It's to show us that we cannot straighten it. If God bent it, it will be bent. You can spend the rest of your life trying to, to reason and to figure out what will fall short. All the problems that you see around you, no man can solve them. Man cannot eradicate global hunger. Man cannot heal all the diseases. Talk of cancer. With our efforts, you cannot fix a broken relationship. That is not to say that you, have, you can play your own part to help the needy, to help the sick. But the point is, you're not able to solve all these problems with wisdom. And can you able, are you able to put a number of things that are lacking? Saying what is lacking cannot be counted. Are you able to count all the problems, all the things that need to be put together for life to make sense? Cannot be counted. So I'm not try taking the crooked things and making it straight. And we are not able to do that. He was not able to do that. And you see, the world has a way of straightening crooked things. You have the prison system. You have the rehabilitation centers. You have the orphanages. You have the judicial system. You see, the judicial system does not change people. It is God who changes people. You've heard of a repeat offender. Yes? You've heard of a repeat offender? If you don't know what a repeat offender is or who he is, when you get home, look yourself in the mirror. That is a repeat offender. Because you have sinned against God over and over again. Even the sins that you've repented, you have sinned, you've sinned against God again. We are a dog that returns to his vomit. That's the Bible. Our judicial system does not make crooked things straight. Eight steps does not make crooked things, crooked people straight. The world will not fix us. People can <laughs> confess to you and cry crocodile, crocodile tears. And when you're forgiven them, they go back again and commit the same crime. Church discipline 
does not make crooked people straight. We do church discipline to purify the church, but you're only straightened by getting to God. Solomon says, I had all the power at my disposal, all the intelligence, all the resources, but I wore myself out trying to make crooked things straight. If you try to make liars stop lying, you cannot do it. Your pastor cannot change them. Neither can you. The world cannot change under the sun. It's only God through Jesus Christ who can change the hearts of men. Who can transform men. What is lacking cannot be counted. He's saying, I cannot even count how many stuff is unsatisfying. Have you, found, have you ever found someone who seems to be very brilliant, very charismatic, very rich, very eloquent, but you stay long enough with that person, you find that there are areas that are wanting. You may find that they are an immoral person. You may find that they are into drugs, or they are liars, or they are, they are a bully. What is lacking cannot be counted. And then the second point, the application of wisdom, verse 16 to 17a. Verse 16 to 17a, he says, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. So Solomon is having a meeting with himself here. And what is the plan? He's going to engage his efforts with all his wisdom to figure these things out. God gave him wisdom. People travel long distances to hear of Solomon's wisdom. But the next thing that is, is, he found out when he sought to apply wisdom to the issues of life, he realizes that wisdom cannot solve the vanity that is there in life. So you can forget about humility a moment. And he says, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. He's saying, I'm the smartest man who ever lived. I'm more smart than anyone in Egypt. Egypt could put together all their professors, all their scholars, all their brains together. But Solomon is saying, I'll trump them all. I'm better than them all. And then the conclusion, verse 17 and 18, that's the third point, the conclusion, verse 17b to 18, he says, I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Here is the conclusion when he looked at life under the sun. He had this magnified wisdom, 
we try to press the boundaries to find out through wisdom and knowledge what can be profitable under the, the world what is going to make life make sense and guess what he came up with he says I perceive that this also is but striving after wind so I tried to seek meaning through wisdom but I came up short and it left me empty it left me worse he's going to find out how smartness is going to seek life through his smartness and the folly here he says uh, through uh, I, I, and to know madness and folly and the folly here is talking about the ignorance you see your intelligence does not keep you from folly because we have you can have you've heard of the smartest people on this world but they say what they say that there is no god and the bible says the fool says in his heart there's no god so you can be a smart fool and so when he sought to apply his wisdom in real life his conclusion is i came back to where i was in the beginning his wisdom in verse 18 it yielded what yielded frustration He's, he's, he's exhausted all his solutions, but there's nothing. He's saying, the smarter I became, the less smart I realized I was. The more that I learned, the more that I realized that I needed to learn. The more information I had, the more information I realized I did not have. So this is an, an ending cycle. It's not enough. So that the more you look at world politics, for example, you're frustrated. You wonder what is wrong with people. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. His wisdom does not yield at least earthly answers. His rhetorical endeavor is to push you and I to the depth. He's trying to help us see the futility of seeking to find the meaning and purpose of life by looking at the earth. When you look beyond the sun and realize that there's a God in heaven, life will make meaning to you. Here's the bottom line. The more you know, the more you are hurt. Frustration, pain, sorrow comes when I sought meaning and purpose of life by wisdom. That is what he's saying. And you do realize that the most educated individuals are often among the saddest. Solomon says, the smarter I became, the more confusing things became. The more I learned, the more perplexed I became. And this is a reality to all of us. If you wrestle with the meaning and the purpose of life, you'll know grief. If you search for answers, you'll come up short and you'll know pain. Solomon with his wisdom and resources made his life more complicated. If you notice the things that should be straight and are bent, the pieces that are missing, 
your pain increases. Beloved, if you know the Lord and you continue to know the depth of your fallenness, of your sinfulness, of your rebellion against God, your grief will increase more. One commentator says, those who take life seriously cannot take life lightly. So don't give up on wisdom, the preacher says, because it has its fair of advantages. But realize that wisdom will never give us the keys to unlock the mysteries of life. You cannot do it. You can have the sharpest brain, you can have the precise analysis, but you cannot find the solutions, all the solutions of life. There are things that are lacking, there are things that are crooked. And that is how God made it. And if you cannot take that, if you cannot embrace it, you cannot live with that, surely you'll go crazy. Because he says there's no fun in knowing more. Because the more I knew, the more I'm bothered. The more I studied about life, the more I was disgusted. The more I looked at it, the more I wish I did not know how it worked. You see, it's sometimes good not to know things. Some things are better not to know. The secrets of men. Have you been in a situation where you've, you have heard someone um, saying something that you wish you did not hear? Has someone spoken to you and, tell, and told you so many things that you beg them, don't tell me any longer? It's like food that you've eaten and afterwards you realize what has been done to it. You eat meat, for example, and you later on you're told that was, that was a crocodile or, or an animal that you hate. You see, you feel like vomiting, throwing up. And it's difficult for us to keep our eyes on Christ if we always have this appetite to seek people's business. The more I knew, the more I liked life under the sun. They say that there are four personality types. And one of the personality types is melancholy. These are people who overanalyze situations, ideas, and problems. These are people who are deep thinkers. When other people are laughing, they wonder why people are laughing. It, is it no wonder that these people are often sad or depressed? Because they are deeply thoughtful. They are not often happy. And I'm not saying they are always depressed, but I'm making the point in verse 18. In much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. This answer to life cannot come through wisdom. If you're going to think deeply about life, the preacher says you will be depressed. Number of applications. First application is you cannot have or find meaning to life through brain power. Because many philosophers have wore themselves out trying to figure out the meaning of life. You cannot solve the questions by mere wisdom. 
And then secondly, I want to ask you a question. What are you chasing? If you're chasing the things of this world, those things and whatever gain you'll have, they will not even constitute a drop in the bucket of what Solomon had. Solomon had more wealth than all of us here put together. And if you're searching for the things of the world, that search is empty. It is wearisome. The Bible warns us in 1 Timothy 6.10, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Some have loved money to the point that they stopped believing Christ. They stopped following Christ. Solomon looked at everything that is done on this earth and concluded it is all emptiness. Do not let the people who have the riches, who have the wealth, who have the fame of this world make you think that they are happy. Entertainment doesn't make one happy. We only find our meaning in our maker. Jesus Christ is all you need. And maybe because we have not tested such a wealth, such a fame, such comfort in life, are we deceived to pursue those things without God? You see, it is futile to make sense of the senselessness in this world apart from God. Then thirdly, Under the sun, crooked things cannot be straightened, but with the, with the Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ, things can be straightened. So the Lord Jesus Christ, that the man with the withered hand, the man with the crooked hand, was straightened. It is the Lord Jesus Christ meeting Paul, the persecutor of the church on the road to Damascus that he changes him from a persecutor from a murderer, from a blasphemer to a visionary for the church you cannot change anyone I cannot change anyone God can change people through his word through the gospel only Jesus Christ will give you a solid foundation. You see, the fashion in this world, the cars, they're always inventing new things. The houses, the phones, they continue to reinvent all other things, all new things. But in Jesus Christ is a solid rock. The world is a sinking sand. It's a shifting sand because Whenever this thing is discovered, whenever these pro new products comes up, people have already shifted to something new again. The world is always shift shifting. But in Christ you have a solid rock. And then fourthly, there's a wisdom from God. 
Jesus Christ is the personification of that wisdom. If you look to him, you find eternal life. You find meaning. He died, he was buried, he's risen from the dead. And he will come back to take us with him. He came to redeem his people, to pay a ransom for his people, so that you who are crooked can be straightened. He has redeemed us. He has freed us from all our sins so that we find meaning in him. So that whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, you do it to the glory of God. Whether you clean the church, whether you wash the toilet, whether you arrange the chairs here every morning or you open the gate, it can, you can find meaning. Why? Because you're doing it to the glory of God. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word this afternoon. We thank you that in Christ, everything makes sense. And even the things that are crooked, that cannot be strengthened, we rest upon your sovereignty, knowing that indeed you do all things well. We cannot understand why some things happen in this world. But we know that you're the designer, you're the author, you're the good God. And we thank you for this evening that you've granted us a wonderful time together. We pray that as we continue to worship you, all praise may be to your name. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.